Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are in the world, and welcome to the fifth Black Hat webcast, Clickjacking and Browser Security, brought to you by White Hat Security, Black Hat, and United Business Media, LLC. I'm Steve Paul, and I'm your announcer today. We have just a few announcements before we begin. This webcast is designed to be interactive between you and our presenters. Later in the program, we will ask for your feedback. Speaking of participation, you can participate in the Q&A session by asking questions at any time during the presentation. Just type your question into the Ask a Question text area below the media player, then click the Submit button. We will answer as many questions as time permits after the presentation. You may enlarge the slide window at any time by clicking on the Enlarge Slide button located below the presentation window. Slides will advance automatically throughout the event. You can also download a copy of the presentation by clicking on the Download Slide button below the presentation window. At this time, we recommend you disable your pop-up blockers. If you're experiencing any technical problems, please visit our webcast help guide by clicking on the Help link below the video window. In addition, you can contact our technical support helpline, which is also located in the webcast help guide. And now on to our presentation, Clickjacking and Browser Security. Moderating today is Jeff Moss founder of Black Hat. Over to you, Jeff. Hey, thanks. Um, I just wanted to say thank you and welcome everybody to our uh, fifth webcast here on clickjacking. And for those of you who are new to the webcast series, it's something we try to do uh, consistently once a month on the third Thursday. And it lasts about 90 minutes maximum. We try to have the content for about 40, 45 minutes, and then we do questions and answers as long as possible. Sometimes we, uh, we overextend our stay here. And uh, it's generally a really good time. Uh, the format is generally very conversational with myself or other speakers, uh, sometimes interjecting themselves and asking questions. And uh, in the end, we'll have a dedicated Q&A time period. Also, what I do is I watch your questions coming in, and I sometimes bundle up three or four of them and uh, create like a giant meta question uh, to drop on the speaker. And that speaker for today is going to be Jeremiah Grossman, uh, the co-discoverer of this clickjacking vulnerability, it was widely publicized within the last two months. And uh, Jeremiah, who's the CTO of White Hat, uh, discovered this with Rsnake, or Robert Hansen. And this vuln allows an attacker to transparently capture user clicks, and that enables them to force the user to do all sorts of things, from adjusting security settings to unwittingly uh, visiting websites that might have malicious code, uh, the vectors include all the major browsers and Flash. And uh, basically, if you can click on something, they can encourage you or they can uh, direct you to click on something. So it's kind of scary. The more you think about it, it's sort of like the DNS sec vuln. I mean, I'm sorry, the, the DNS uh, cache vuln that Kaminsky found, where at first you think you understand all the implications, but the more you think about it, the, the greater the problem becomes sort of this dawning realization that things are screwed. Along with Jeremiah, we also have Eric Lawrence uh, from Microsoft. He is the security program manager on the Internet Explorer browser team, uh, specifically the Internet Explorer 8 team, but I'm sure he's probably got a 9 and a 10 up his sleeve somewhere. And he's going to be sharing his insights uh, from the vendor perspective uh, on what the, the security apparatus and browser security models are or what they should be in the future to deal with problems like these or other future unknown problems. So we'll be getting his perspective as the uh, presentation goes along and afterwards. Uh, 
So ask questions in the Q&A field. Uh, stick around. And I want to uh, introduce or let Eric introduce himself, give us his perspective a bit, and then we'll kick off the uh, webinar. So thanks for being here. It's always fun. Eric? Hi, what's up? Yeah, why don't you tell people a bit about yourself? So as mentioned, I'm the uh, MA Program Manager on the Internet Explorer security team. I've worked on Internet Explorer for about four years. I shipped Internet Explorer 7, and I worked on the networking stack and uh, some of the SSL user experience and the new user experience for extended validation certificates, as well as uh, a number of other features that we did for security in IE7. I've been working on Internet Explorer 8 security since the planning process and uh, helping to drive essentially our investments in mitigating the browser and add-on-based vulnerabilities and social engineering attacks, and this new field of, of great interest, the web application vulnerabilities, of which uh, click, clickjacking we classify in that category. The clickjacking attack is really kind of a super interesting one because it is one of the hardest things for a browser to address because it is essentially the browser working in the way that it was designed and intended but, you know, there's a side effect out of that, that that we have to find a way to mitigate because there is a security impact. And so this is uh, one of one of a few things that is, is really putting the browser vendors on the defensive where they have to find a way not to break the web, as, as we like to say in Internet Explorer, while at the same time mitigating the vulnerability. So uh, this is definitely an area for us uh, that we're looking at, and I'll have, you know, more commentary as the slides go on. Okay, so uh, Jeremiah, why don't you we uh, kick off your first slide there? Tell us briefly about yourself, and then uh, it's right into the meat of the meat of the matter. Great. Uh, it's actually uh, it's great that we have have Eric Lawrence on the line because he can actually really dig into the browser perspective, and he knows a lot about what you know. Having spoken with Eric over time, he definitely knows what he's talking about in the browser arena. So it's very good for for, uh, for us to have him here to provide context for this whole clickjacking thing. But uh, you know, like Jeff mentioned before, I'm the founder and CTO of YHAT. Uh, we provide website vulnerability assessment services for customers, large and small, where they hire us to assess websites, uh, you know, day in and day out. And uh, so I spend uh, a part of my time doing research, R&D, and different attack, uh, attack classes, uh, defense measures, and things like that. And when I find new discoveries, I, you know, I put them out there. I get to do presentations at uh, great conferences like Black Hat, and and you know, generate. Uh, community discussion: How these attacks can be addressed, whether they're either at the website level or the or the browser level. So, we're going to work slowly towards this uh, clickjacking thing, just to kind of bring everybody up to speed on the state of the art in web security. How how best to characterize web security and explain it from a high level, and we'll drill down as far as we need to on the whole clickjacking thing. Uh, the way I like to view web security, at least that's helpful to me, is it comes in two halves. You have the you have the websites and you have the web browsers. Or put another way, you have the servers and you have the clients. Now, in a perfect world, what we want to be able to do in securing the websites is make sure that they're able to protect themselves against a hostile web user. So if you are responsible for securing a website, you want to make sure anybody connecting to your website, whether it's via browser, proxy, you know, you know, telnet or whatever, that they can't break into the website. And this is the things that we have control over, okay? We can... Uh, we can patch our systems, we can configure, well configure systems and harden them. We can also make sure that our code that goes onto these websites is uh, safe and secure and they can be audited and assessed. And that's what Y-Hat 
does for a living, and that's how we help our customers. But there's this other half here, the part that we're going to focus uh, our main attention on is the security of the web browser. Um, you know, mo- web browsers are built by uh, uh, by organizations like Mozilla, Microsoft, uh, Opera, Apple makes Safari, and so on and so forth, they must be able to protect themselves against a hostile web page. Because when you surf the web, you go to one web page to the next, this is not just text that we're interacting with. It's executable code, HTML, JavaScript, Flash, so uh, Silverlight, so on and so forth. And so the browsers must be able to render and handle this code safely and securely, you know, without having their machine... Uh, uh, hacked in the meantime. So they must be able to protect themselves against a hostile web page. Uh, beyond just patching and securely configuring your browser, we don't have a whole lot of direct control over the security of our browsers. We're, um, we're dependent upon, well, mostly Mozilla and Microsoft for creating and shipping uh, a secure product that we, can re- that we can rely upon. So there's been uh, organizations that have done studies in this area. That's, so what's the most, uh, the most secure browser the most secure environment are are most of them patched, and so there was a sampling done, and I really encourage people to read this uh, this study if they're interested in browser security. That they looked at uh, you know the internet population, the billion plus users online, and and looked at the different browsers by version and seen what version were they running or and were they running the most secure versions of the browser and the plugins that go along with them. So. While really secure versions of the browsers were available at the time of the study, what was shown in the study is, you know, delineated by the different, uh, the different browsers or the browser uh, distributions, there was a wide gap between what, you know, the most secure versions were and how many people were actually using them. And the results of the study essentially said roughly 600 million users were not running the latest or most secure version of the, of the browser. This one includes the browser, you know, itself, as well as the plugins that go along with it. So what it means for the bad guy is, is that if you can get your code to be run by these insecure browsers, then there's a large territory out there. You could cause a lot of damage. It's a lot of, a lot of green field out there. So what the bad guys started to do at the end of 2000, well, let's start it this way. Now, one of the ways to get to an insecure browser is via the websites that they interact with. So this is where website security comes into play. And as I mentioned before, White Hat, we're in the business of assessing publicly facing websites or the custom web app, web applications and publicly facing websites. So this is our, our top 10 that shows the likelihood of a site having a vulnerability by a particular class. So the way to read this is 67% of the sites have cross-site scripting, another 41% uh, uh, have information leakage where they review more information than they should. Now, is this, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but are these sure. stats of uh, what you find when you guys are doing assessments, or is this sort of a blind crawl of the web and the results that are found? These are, these are aggregate statistics from our customer base. So these are the, the, the probably the, the largest and most important sites out there, the ones you shop at, bank at, you know, you know the sites that and, you really want to be secure. It's about a 1,000 of them. And, and because they're your customers, they already are thinking about security, so they have security on the mind. I would guess in the general population, this number would not even be this. Uh, that, that would probably be correct. We, we, we believe these to be what well, we would like to think that these are the most secure sites out there. And so these aren't the, the normal statistics you're going to get from SANS or ISSX Force or Semantic, the well-known issues. These are volumes in custom web applications, the ones that don't get published. So that, that's exactly right. Uh, okay. So, 
these are the ones that, you know, you go to a website and how best can I break into this? Let me, you know, rotate numbers in a URL or anything else like that. So this is, you know, our top 10, which would probably be representative on, you know, most of the, let's say the Alexa 1000 out there, you know, something like that. So these statistics and this problem has been known for quite some time, both by, you know, this, uh, the IT security industry, uh, the and uh, but also in you know in, encompassing that the the bad guys. So now to kind of blend these two together, if I want to attack uh, you know hundreds of millions of internet users, uh, target their browsers, the best way to get to them has actually been found uh, through the website itself because they are very vulnerable. So what has what happened at the end of 2007 is we started having these mass SQL injection slash drive by downloading attacks. So. The way it was uh, said to work was that the bad guys, and we be- they're believed to be uh, uh, Chinese in origin, but they have extended out beyond that with copycat attacks, is that search engines would be used to find uh, soft targets, sites that are using old and vulnerable web a- custom web application code, sites running ASP Classic, PHP, and things like that. And they would... They are now targeting them with SQL injection, generic SQL injection that does not normally, uh, that inserts malicious iframes and JavaScript into those pages. Now, this is a little bit of a different paradigm here. Previously to this going on, we used to think of SQL injection as a way to execute database commands, you know, directly on the website, but we pulled data out of the website. We download credit card numbers and intellectual property which our preconceived notion was is that each and every SQL injection attack was a one-off, you know, because we had to learn the database format and extract data out. But what these attackers found is that they can create generic attacks that don't extract data. They instead put data in, in the form of uh, malicious HTML iframes. So now, when a visitor arrives to these websites, their browser is redirected behind the scenes via this iframe to pull down an exploit of, you know, any number of exploits that will then exploit the browser and then infect the machine with some, you know, form of malware, rootkit, or Trojan horse, or something like that. And then at the last phase is that now that machine that's been part of a botnet under command and control would then try to exploit more websites and more users. And so this had wide-reaching effects out there. Uh, it was estimated that it's estimated now that if you look at the infected web page population out there, roughly 80% of the sites that are hosting malicious code are legitimate, meaning that these websites are, are hacked. This is a completely different paradigm than what we had before was when, you know, bad guys would set up fake websites and, you know, entice uh, visitors to, you know, view them. They're now the, Uni- the United Nations, the Department of Homeland Security, um, the Sony PlayStation website and things like that. So this is a very large problem. And, uh, you know, and this is, uh, you know, kind of snuck up on us all of a sudden. So from a larger web perspective, we have to figure out how to get, you know, SQL injection or control on all the websites as well as defend our browsers from an insecure web. Now, Jeremiah, the reason you're saying it snuck up on us is because what we focused all our attention on hardening web servers and as web services became uh, Web 2.0 appeared on the scene, all of a sudden, it was an unknown uh, or unquantifiable risk, all these the cross-site scripting vulnerabilities. And you're saying we just didn't, we weren't able to comprehend them, and so all of a sudden, CNN or whoever it is that implements these these web apps are introducing uh, vulnerabilities that we only find out later. 
so what, what happened was, you know, our preconceived notion of SQL injection is that our risks were kind of hedged because the bad guys had to target one website at a time to extract data out of it, you know, whatever valuable data the website had. What took us by surprise is the bad guy's ability to create a generic SQL uh, injection attack that put data into the database. So all of a sudden, uh, when you to get hacked, rather than having to be specifically targeted, you're now you're now you can now be you know targeted as part of a whole pool of potentially vulnerable websites. But people put enormous amount of resources validating user input. So, uh, yeah. well, I would I would I would think a lot of them did right. Uh, statistically, it's uh, we need a lot of help in that area. <laughs> Still, okay. So really, that's the the chickens came home to roost because of of that problem in two thousand eight. Yes. So you know, we, we've known we had all these vulnerabilities for quite some time. But also, you know, also consider consider. Actually, I should I should move ahead uh, one slide here. I missed uh, that slide. So so that, that's the, that's the, this is this particular slide here that shows the the sequence of events. So right now, about seventy percent of the websites that are out there, you know, we we've measured have have SQL injection. But even only at seventeen percent, that equals millions of compromised websites. So rather than having to be one website, you have to be you know one of the millions of websites that are vulnerable, targeted directly. Now the bad guys are just exploiting it at large. So. You know, input validation. You not only have to you not only have to do it, but you have to do it everywhere and all the time. And I think that's the challenging part for website owners is doing it everywhere and all the time. That makes sense. sense. So, I started to ask questions about uh, on the you know, about browser security about uh, from those who read my blog, other web security experts to go, okay. Let's say all these websites out there are infected, and there's JavaScript malware everywhere. What are the experts doing to protect their websites, right? And I asked them, you know, through a survey on my site, asked them, oh, well, you know, how do you personally do it? How do you personally protect your browser? Do you virtualize? Do you use security add-ons? Do you use multiple browsers? Do you disable JavaScript and Flash explicitly, you know, or do you use a, you know, text-based only browser? So I asked them all these questions, and what came back was a large mix. People are doing lots of different things, and sometimes in in all in a, in a lot of them. But the one, the couple of things that you know showed up was uh, you know could be predicted was that uh, roughly 60% are using you know of web security experts are using additional security add-ons above and beyond what the browser gives you uh, natively. Um, about half are using multiple browsers to compartmentalize their risk. But the one that was really revealing, even though it was a, little, a lower number to me, is about one quarter of uh, security experts, web security guys, said that they're virtualizing their browser. That said to me is that they've, uh, they assumed that at some point, no matter what they did to secure their browsing environment, that they believed that they were going to get hacked or the risk was there, but that they're completely virtualizing their, web, uh, their website environment. Uh, the first time I heard of this method being used was uh, when uh, security guys were, were their children at home were getting online. They would virtualize the browser so the the, the child would start from a known good uh, state every time, you know, so they didn't get infected and have all kinds of uh, nasty pop-ups. But now that now they're using this same technique for their personal browsing experience because they just believe that there's a likelihood that they're going to get hacked. Uh, just a product pitch to throw in here. Uh, Green Border, which was really cool at doing this, got bought by Google over two years ago, and then Google discontinued it, or I, I haven't seen the product since, but that was a web virtualization technology that was specific to the browser, um, and that was, did exactly that. It was cool. It virtualized registry entries. You could go back and you could review what registry changes had occurred during your browsing session. It was 
It's pretty cool. Since then, I've been, had a hard time identifying what virtualizing tools, besides a whole virtual PC, you know, what can I wrap around just my browser? That, that's what I think most of the web security guys are doing. You know, they're using they're using VMware a lot to encapsulate their browser. Uh, you know, maybe Eric know, knows more about you know because we, we see Google Chrome doing a little bit of the virtual sandboxing thing. Uh, what's what's uh, what's what's going on with IE8 and virtualization? So, so we started doing virtualization in IE7. So we introduced protected mode that ran Internet Explorer on Vista and later with uh, low integrity tokens, and so. Sandboxing browsers is actually really, really trivial to do. The the problem, of course, is is that once you sandbox the browser, then lots of scenarios like saving pictures to your desktop doesn't work anymore. And so where virtualization comes into play is you have to use virtualization to keep scenarios working that users might want to work. So Flash, for instance, wants to write files to the file system, and you have to use virtualization to ensure that the file system it writes to isn't the real file system to keep the system isolated. And so where you start to see virtualization, you know, take place seamlessly in things like, you know, protected mode in Internet Explorer, the virtualization is primarily to keep the user experience after you've built a sandbox that isolates the rest of the system. And so that's, a, you know, an example of seamless virtualization. For, for non-seamless virtualization, as you mentioned, there's VMware. There's also a virtual PC. Um, there's a couple of restore to known good state systems for Windows. But fundamentally, the, the problem or challenge with virtualization is it doesn't often give users the rich experience they want, where they want some sort of integration with the rest of the system. They want to be able to save off pictures. They want to be able to publish their content up to the web. Uh, and so if you completely virtualize everything, you lose that user experience. So the challenge for us and the challenge for browser makers in general is how to do the set of trade-offs where you keep the user and the system secure while simultaneously keeping the user experience such that users want to use the browser. They think, you know, it's good to share pictures using the browser as opposed to building a native custom client to do that. Sure. So that's, that's the key for us. So uh, one of the uh, – on IE8, just give us a quick – 30-second rundown versus IE7, um, is there going to be even more virtualization? Or how do you get around uh, you know, spyware that plagued, say, IE7? Is How do you keep that out in IE8? So, so I think a key thing to consider is you know, protected mode itself. And protected mode was introduced in IE7 and caused Internet Explorer to run with low integrity. And one of the things that you found pretty quickly, and one of the things we've seen over the, the course of the last two years is that attackers very often aren't even going for the browser itself anymore because the browser itself is becoming a much harder target. And because there's many different browsers out there, one of the things that bad guys are doing is they're increasingly targeting add-ons. They're finding add-ons that have high market share, greater than 90%. They find vulnerabilities there, and then they exploit every browser through that add-on. And so we're, we're talking PDF, Flash, maybe some LinkedIn or MySpace plugin. Uh, yeah, that's basically the group. We try not to name names. But certainly anything with broad distribution becomes a vector for, for vulnerabilities. And so uh, one of the month of browser bugs, we, we saw recently 26 out of the 31 vulnerabilities that they, they'd considered browser bugs were, in fact, add-on vulnerabilities. So for Internet Explorer 8, we've done a lot to increase the hardening of the system against add-on vulnerabilities. And so in IE7, we had ActiveX opt-in which limited which add-ons could be run in the browser without prompting user first. For IE8, we've added a feature called per-site ActiveX. So if you go out to, say, Yahoo and install the Yahoo Music Engine, by default, the Yahoo Music Engine 
ActiveX control isn't available from any site except for Yahoo. And so by doing that, we can mitigate the, the attacks, the malicious iframe attacks and the, the like, because those malicious those add-ons, which are non-malicious, can't be exploited by malicious code. We've also done things like increase our use of um, DepNX. So DepNX is on by default in Internet Explorer 8. We were able to do that because of some of the work that enhanced compatibility. Because in general, in the browser security space, you're almost always able to make a trade-off between compatibility and security. We could make the browser 100% secure by pulling the network cable, right? But it's not going to be compatible with what people want. <laughs> what about... So, I'm sorry. What about... Um, you know, I guess it's... it's and this is high on your mind, I bet, is the browser wars coming up with the next version of Firefox and this uh, increased push to secure browsers. And the latest thing is to virtualize or, I guess, or spawn a separate thread or process space for every single web page to try to prevent uh, cross-tab browsing. Or, yep. Uh, so there's... There's, there's lots of interesting ideas in the world of virtualization. So Internet Explorer 8 introduces a new thing called uh, loosely coupled IE. And loosely coupled IE basically changes the process model for the browser such that different tabs run in different processes. This isn't really done for security reasons. It's done for... Uh, essentially reliability reasons. And so by far and away, the number one crash in Internet Explorer is caused by add-ins. And in fact, a significant majority of overall crashes in the browser are buggy add-ons. And so unfortunately, we don't have the ability to go rewrite everyone else's add-ons. But what we can do is ensure that if a tab happens to crash, it's not going to bring down the entire browser process. Now, there are some security implications and benefits of doing this because, as you noted, the fact that things are occurring in different processes can reduce attack surface. But the challenge you run into as a browser implementer is keeping the scenarios working that people expect. So if I'm at a bank site, for instance, and I click, you know, login, and that login spawns a pop-up, well, regardless of what process that pop-up happens to end up in, there's a certain expectation that things like session cookies and so forth will end up getting shared across processes. So I think the, the thing that you have to look at when you look at these new process models for browsers is what are the goals that they're trying to achieve and how many sort of uh, backdoors do there have to be to make the web experience work. Right, right. Okay. That was a back to, back to you, Jer. Oh, sure. This, so this, actually, that makes for a, a great segue into you know the, the moral of the story here, right? The moral of the story is we have to find and fix the vulnerabilities in our websites. You know, we don't want our sites delivering malware. That's you know should be a given, and we want to we want to patch our browsers as best we possibly can. So while these things are very good, how, how much on the browser side, if we patch this, how much does this really help? What what is what is still possible even if you're running the latest and greatest uh, browser version and you've done everything right? And this is where where we bring us to the, the, the concept of JavaScript malware that can still do history feeling. We can still do intranet hacking, login detection. We can still propagate webworms. We can do phishing with Superbait, uh, passwords, that, you know, and so on and so forth. So we'll go through a couple of things that I, I believe are still possible in, in all browsers. And, uh, you know, so things like history stealing, and I apologize, the, the code is a, is a little uh, messed up here, but we can still do history stealing through the use of JavaScript and CSS, meaning if you're a user on the web, if you visit a website, they can actually uh, brute force determine website, what websites you visited. And the way to do this is actually, uh, it's a pretty simplistic attack. It's been known for many, many years now. But what you do is you take a long list of websites or URLs that you want to see if a user has been to, let's say, a 1,000 or 2,000 links. They could be web banks, web mail providers, social networks, you name it. 
And what you do is you post all these links on your on your web page, visibly or invisibly. And what you do is using some JavaScript and some CSS code, you you tell you you have a look to see whether the link has been visited or not. Um, you can just check the link color or the the visited uh, pseudo, CSS pseudo subclass. Uh, pseudo and so this this attack technique will work whether or not the user has JavaScript turned on or not. And this has been tested in a wide variety of browsers. It w- works on just about all of them, unless special protections have been uh, uh, put in place by the user to turn them to turn them off. And I'll let Eric speak to it. But is is, is this still possible in, uh, in in the new versions of IE8? You know, are, are these being is this kind of thing being addressed? I love this attack because this is the attack, and in fact, it, it's kind of it's kind of bad that we're setting you up this way. But the type of research you've been doing recently is really great because fundamentally, what you're doing is you're taking something that the browser is supposed to do, and you're making it evil. And that, of course, is really hard for the browser kind vendors. Of, kind of like Google, huh? <laughs> it's, it's really hard for browser vendors to patch because everything is working the way it's supposed to. And so as a security researcher, it's great for you because it's not like a one-hit wonder. It's a recurring theme that you get to say, I get to use this hack and combine it with this hack. So here's a case where there's a standard that says, here's how CSS visited links are supposed to work, or here's how the browser is supposed to keep track of visited links. And so you've got these standards that combine in ways that were never expected at all by the designers of the standards. And so this attack was possible long before it was discovered, and you're right to identify that it was identified quite a while ago. And the trick is that you can't really patch this without either changing the standard or violating the standard and breaking the way things work. Or turning off browser history. Exactly, or turning off browser history. And so one of the key things to distinguish here is that Internet Explorer 8 does have a great mitigation against this particular exploit, where if you use the new in-private mode browsing for Internet Explorer, we don't keep track of history in that mode, and we also don't keep track of visited links while in that mode. So you've got two choices. Either you can browse your, your uh, potentially malicious sites in in-private mode, in which case they can't get access to your normal browser history because we don't light up visited links, or you can visit only your good sites in the in-private mode, in which case we never add to your history the URLs of the good sites that you visited. So you have a bit of a partition. But going beyond that, providing some mechanism by which, you know, the browser just doesn't store visited links, it's an option. But then you start to get into breaking the user experience where people upgrade to IE8 and if, for instance, visited links didn't work, they'd say, well, wait a minute, you know, why why isn't this feature that I've had in my browser for 12 or 13 years working properly? And this, again, back to the trade-offs that we have to make for security, you've got to decide where where does the bar lie? And the design bugs in the web platform are extremely hard for the browser vendors to deal with. And this is going to be a recurring theme. You'll see. Oh, I, I, absolutely, I can I can only sympathize with uh, you know writing a browser has got to be one of the most the harder exercises out there. And we and uh, yeah and you know what do you what do you do as a as a browser maker if the standard itself requires you to make an insecure product? And that's got to be a tough one to deal with. So. And, uh, you know, I was, I was recently reading the HTML5 spec, and isn't there some areas in there where it says add security here? <laughs> yes, that's, that's a problem for, for all specs. But in particular, there, there certainly, and we'll get to the, the economic challenges that make browser security hard, and, and, and perhaps uh, there are conflicts of interest. But, yes, for us, you know, our stance has been that we won't, we won't implement a standard that has security problems with it. And in some cases, that's led to controversy. So, for instance, within HTML5, the access control stack, we chose not to implement the access control stack because we don't think the security concerns are, are rightly addressed. 
And so there's some standards people who say, hey, wait, you know, we all standardized on this feature. So it, it's definitely going to be a, an interesting next couple of years. So, so, and, so just uh, one other thing on the history stealing one. So while you can check to see if a user has, uh, you know, been to a, you know, a publicly available website, you know, you know, anything that's publicly available. You can also do a brute force guess in the same way for internet host names as well, you know, the slash mail server and the slash internet server and so on and so forth and see what, what sites that a user can get to inside of their enterprise. And this actually, uh, we're going to jump over one slide here and uh, go into the, the area of internet hacking. And this is, might be one, another one of those, uh, those core fundamental problems that uh, Eric was talking about earlier. Uh, you know, when this is just how the web browser was designed. So when you look at uh, just a simple picture of an intranet infrastructure, you're, you know, if you're at your local, if you're at your company and you're normally browsing outside of your firewall, you're going site to site to site, and you're protected by a firewall VPN, the standard perimeter security model. Anybody outside the perimeter security firewall tries to get, uh, connect in over SSH, NetBIOS, FTP, or whatever, they should be repelled with a properly secured firewall. However, when in a browser security context over port 80, when your browser goes and connects to, a let's say, a malicious website, downloads the code and executes it, it does so within the context of the browser, and the browser is, by extension, behind the, behind the wall. So what an attacker can do is they can actually force your browser to make connections to internally routable IP addresses, sites that they can't get to remotely. They can use the user's browser as a conduit, a proxy to make these attacks. So I can point your browser to 192.168, you know, uh, one of the 10 networks, and get access going that way. So I'll, uh, I'm going to w- walk through some of the details of this attack, and uh, we can get uh, Eric to comment on these. Um, there's a, there's a, with one e- e- simple way, um, if, if you have Java enabled, which a lot of people do, to get a local, uh, a local internal IP, it's just to use a you know, quick Java applet that creates a socket call in the browser, and it's very simple to get the user's internal non-routable IP address. And once you have that, you can then force the user to start targeting internal IPs that, they may, or, that may or may not be active. And Jer, is, Jer, is that uh, Java only or Java and JavaScript? That is, you can actually you can compile this Java as uh, part of an applet, or in Firefox, uh, you can uh, make these calls directly out of JavaScript. It's just your preference. When you make it into an applet, it can be cross-platform between Firefox and IE by my test. Okay, cool. I was just wondering when you said Java up here, if uh, a lot of people don't use Java anymore, but everybody has JavaScript on. Uh, uh, actually, a lot, a lot of people out there have Java enabled. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, I, I, I don't recall whether or not it's on by default in Firefox 3 or IE 7 or if you have to install it separately, but there's a, there is a, by percentage, there is a lot of people that have it. But whether or not you have it, you can, since, uh, since the internal IP ranges are RFC specific, you can just guess them directly if you want to and make blind requests. You don't actually have to go this way. It just makes it a little bit faster. Excellent. So, the, uh, one of the things that you can do in JavaScript is you can actually make a JavaScript port scanner. And this, is, uh, this goes back to all the way in 2005 where we started playing around with these things, where you do a quick script source. So, again, user goes to a, a malicious web page, and they line up a bunch of script source tags that point to internal resources. And what happens here is, is that if the internal IP responds with JavaScript, with, responds with HTML in a JavaScript context, it will error in the console. 
Okay, and that, so if there's an error there, you know there's a web page, a web, a website that's active, and if there's no error, you know there's probably not. And so you can route through the whole range in some of the earlier browsers in a whole class C uh, in maybe a minute or two. And so one of the, the safeguards that the browser makers have made is made uh, the same origin policy applied to the JavaScript error console, and this is, has mitigated the attack on, uh, I believe, I, I don't know the state of IE7, but I believe Firefox 3 has this protection in the latest versions built in, but there are, are other ways to go about the same approach. Maybe I'll just stop here and ask Eric, what, what's the status in IE7 and 8 with regard to this particular attack? So for this particular attack, as far as I know, IE was IE seven was never vulnerable because our error console was so weak that we didn't actually expose this type of thing to you. Gotcha. Uh, certainly, anyone who's implementing developer tools and trying to make a richer debugging experience in the browser has to be super careful about these types of information leak attacks. And as I think you're about to point out, there's other ways of, of doing this as well. Correct. So, that, so to, to move on to the next slide here. Uh, well, the, well the, the, let me see here. Where, where am I at? The, uh, to use this particular, uh, this particular method, and we'll go on to another uh, way to internet uh, scan, you can also uh, do a script source equals for a login page detection. So let's say you, you go to your webmail provider. You know, like let's say in this case we're just picking on uh, Gmail, not because it's vulnerable, just because we can get the state that we want to. If you go to... Uh, mail.google.com slash mail. If you're logged in, you get one set of HTML. If you're not logged in, you get another. Now, if you pull that HTML into a script source context, you'll get two different uh, uh, error messages. And if you can determine, determine the, the difference between the two, you can actually tell if the user that you've captured is logged in or not. And if they are logged in, you, know, you can do cross-site request forgery attacks or things like that. So, you know, by this point, you, you know, you know there might, there's some mitigations that have been done in the most recent browsers. Um, so, you know, but if you're not, you know, part of that, there's issues, you know, so you can still see if where the user's been, you can see what places on the internet that they can access or what's active, whether or not they're logged in. But let's say that the bug is not, is not there or they've turned off or hobbled JavaScript. You can also do timing-based attacks, and this is a, an interesting uh, attack, and I'll describe it as best I can. Um, are we still active, Jeff? Yep, yep. Okay. So... This, the, the link tag in what we found uh, has a very in interesting effect. The link tag is normally designed to pull in style sheet information, which controls the look of the page. So, when you, uh, so if the website that you're pointing to is up, you, it'll quickly pull in the style sheet and move on to the image, uh, into the image tag and call that. But if the style sheet reference, the 192 number, is not active from the user standpoint, meaning it's not live, it'll hang for a long time, maybe 10 seconds, before the next image tag pops up against pointed to the attacker. So if the attacker notices a long, uh, long delay between, you know, between requests, they know that they can tell the difference between if the website is up or down. So it's a, another way to do port scanning without JavaScript. So we don't have to spend much time here because we want to get all to the, you know, the cool click jacking stuff. But there are many ways to do interesting things uh, you know, with the browser. So, uh, what, so whether or not you can do a port scan um, uh, and get feedback is one thing. But what the bad guys have started to do, uh, I believe about a year ago now, is they have been using internet hacking in the wild to target, uh, to target different things. And one of, the one of the stories that came about was 
a in there was an incident where bad guys were sending out e-greeting cards to a, a large user base, and when they would read these e-greeting cards, their browser was instructed to connect to the internal their internal DSL router with an exploit, so they bypass the password scheme and exploit the browser and update its DNS settings for a bunch of Mexico banks. So the next time they went to their bank in Mexico, they would get routed through the bad guy's DNS and then get defrauded. So these things are happening. So, you know, that's kind of the, the, the environment of, in which we work out there in the browser world. So, you know, it, earlier this summer at Black Hat, um, you know, we, we kind of left that alone for a while. We started focusing on more server-side attacks, you know, making money using business logic flaws. And um, Aaron Evans was doing encoding-based attacks. And, and Robert Hansen was doing uh, exploiting Google gadgets, you know, more web-based, purely web-based JavaScript malware stuff. And I started to help him on this research. And uh, one of the areas that came up was clickjacking. And how could clickjacking further some of the work that he was doing on uh, on looking at these, you know, these gadgets and web widgets types of things. So, um, so once we started talking about this, this clickjacking stuff, and this is, you know, what everybody's on the phone here to talk about, you know, it kind of just blew up. We had no idea it was going to get so large. And right now, I just, I did a Google search on the term clickjacking. There's over 700,000 references now, and it was kind of interesting to me that the term clickjacking is roughly on par with cross-site scripting now, as far as uh, internet popularity. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So. What is clickjacking? Now, the best way to describe this is if you think of any button on any website that would be you would consider perhaps important in some way. They could be images, links, form buttons. They could be advertising banners, dig buttons, you know, Netflix submits, bank account, uh, wire transfer buttons, any button on any website that a attacker might want to force a user to click on. Now, you can iframe in from any web page. You can iframe in any other web page unless it takes a, unless it uh, has very particular precautions, which we get to. So when you can iframe in a piece of content on a page, you can actually focus in a little part of the page, a button, and have that iframe hover just under the mouse, um, visibly, barely noticeably, if at all noticeable to the to the to the uh, to the victim user. Now, when they click on a link on the page, they can actually be forced to click on something that they never intended to click on. And this is a, an, uh, an easy way to, do, to show this attack is you have a, a web page and you have a little box, you know, an iframe or whatever you want them to click on, hovering just under the mouse, wherever they go, whatever they go, their, their mouse would follow, and they click down and then they click on this button, you know, add a friend uh, to, your, you know, to your social networking site or send an email. So any button online. So we're doing this research and we're looking at, okay, uh, what kind of things that we can we make them click on that are maybe a little malicious? Uh, we can make them click on uh, Google AdSense banners. Huh, that's pretty cool. You know, you could do some click fraud stuff. Perhaps we want to boost them, you know, boost some traffic and make them show up on the front page of Dig so we can, we can uh, you know, force them to click on Dig buttons. You know, that's pretty interesting. And so we started researching more and more. And so we started looking at the different buttons online. We saw, you know, uh, you know, of course, dig buttons. We saw internal buttons on uh, DSL routers, uh, command and control servers for, well, for all sorts of things, but, you know, PayPal buttons and any button online. So we started taking screenshots of these and go, okay, how bad is this click-checking stuff, you know, really? Because, you know, we might be building towards the talk. We had enough interesting stuff, but there's Twitter buttons and WebEx buttons and, all sorts of things. You know, everybody can think of a button that they probably don't want to be forced to click on. So, 
uh, we did a lot of work, um, and also, uh, you know, post uh, all this, uh, all the media, we started, you know, other people started jumping on and adding their own proof of concept code and some really interesting stuff. So I wanted to, you know, take a moment and share some links with people in case if they wanted to see them. So one of the other side effects, you know, as we're building this stuff is that clickjacking bypasses CSRF token protection. Now, for those that aren't directly familiar with cross-site request forgery, when you visit a web page, the, for the most part, the owner of the site can force the user to make any request to any location that they want. You could force the user to make a request to their web bank that perhaps wire transfers money out of their account to a, some other destination, send email, register for things. Um, these have been used for a while. CSRF is a really, really well-known issue. It's rather old. So one of the, one of the protections that website owners are, have done is that they've created this, these little tokens that are different for each user. So what happens is, let's, let's say, well, I'll just, well, we'll pick on Jeff a little bit here. Let's say the same request that he sends to add a friend to his, you know, his pro, a profile on some website is different from mine by token. So each, each user gets a special token. So my, as an attacker, I don't know what Jeff's special token is, and he doesn't know mine. Now, so unless the bad guy can find that special token, they can't make a, a legitimate web page request. And that's, that's the problem with CSRF. It's the right user making the valid request, just not one they intended. So the token is an encapsulation of that intent. But when you iframe in one of these buttons, you know, the button that you want the user to press, it is the real button that generates the real token. So by extension, it bypasses the CSRF token protection. So that's really, really bad. So is, how are we doing, Jeff, on the explanation? Does this make sense? Yeah, I think so one person asked, um, you know, why do you, why not just emulate it all through JavaScript? And I don't think you can emulate it through JavaScript. You actually do need a human to click on something. At, at some point, yeah, a human needs to click on something, right? So, and, and I think the way you did this originally was through invisible div tags. Uh, that was that was one when we were well. We'll get to the whole flash stuff. But, okay. Uh, so the flash was using devs, and the iframes were for third-party web page content, like social networking profiles or DSL routers and things like that. Okay. So, so now this uh, this clickjacking thing, which is known by UI redressing and other names, has been known. We believe to around 2002. Most of the time, you know, we knew about the, that it was an issue, but it was, you know, from our estimation, misunderstood, underestimated, and well, long forgotten. And let's say it wasn't any of those things, as Eric said earlier, really, really hard to fix and do something about. So we have this interesting research and not enough for a solid presentation or anything because this is a post-Black Hat time frame. So we said, well, you know, what other things that we can we get the user to click on? And so we started, you know, we put our thinking caps and said, okay, well, maybe we can, you know, Use Flash or something like that, right? Or and access the uh, the web uh, the webcams. And now, probably everybody on the line here um, has a you know a microphone on their computer. And and if you're a Mac user, you you probably have a microphone on there. So we said, well, can we access the camera and microphone through clickjacking and force them to enable it? And well, JavaScript we couldn't uh, we found couldn't do this stuff. So you know, there's a saying in web security: if JavaScript can't do it, you ask Daddy Flash. Now, Flash has wide market penetration, so we knew that if we can force Flash to grant permissions on behalf of the bad guy, clickjack the, you know, the user in such a way that we enable the camera and microphone, we have something that's pretty nasty. So 
when you load up a Flash movie that wants permissions over the, uh, you know, wants permissions over the camera, it pops up this dialogue, this, uh, you know, these, this Adobe Flash Player settings that asks, do you want to grab permissions? And so what we did was we put this, we wrapped the flash in a div, and we started to make it transparent. So we could actually make the flash movie, the part that uh, the you know the little allow dialog box, we can actually make it so just the allow button sh- is showing just under the mouse, and also make it transparent in the browser. So in the little right there. You see, there's this little allow button just right of the here click link. So as you click around, as you move your mouse around the page, when even if you click, you actually click allow on allowing access to the camera microphone, and you can then, you know, see and hear the user on their bra- uh, in their browser. And so the the proof of concept code that we developed is as soon as they click the link, the 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 PC snaps a picture of them and uploads it to the server, and we added some. Uh, you know, what, what do you call it? So whenever the you know the picture changes, another screenshot is uploaded. So we can actually see and hear the user if we wanted to, you know, as they surf the web. So this is, it was a pretty nasty thing. So there are other ways to other ways to do this. You could stack boxes around the flash things, and that was another technique that can be done not only with uh, flash but uh, also with iframe. So that's another way. And we started to you know, look at different things, and and uh, you know that was a pretty interesting uh, type of attack. And we also found this other place um, online, and most people, including web security experts, didn't know this website existed. Um, we, we we thought people did, but we asked around. There's a place on uh, macromedia.com where you can where you can set the security uh, policies of your Flash player, and this is where you can read your Flash cookies and you know set global policies. So there's a web page out there. You go to this web page, and you can, you know, set your flash security settings, but nobody ever goes here. So what this particular screen is that we're looking at, it's a flash player that is a flash movie that only shows up on macromedia.com. And if you want, and if you want to, you can push this little green checkbox that says always allow, which means always allow somebody, if they want to, without asking, access to your camera and microphone. Now, this is really interesting because if you can, instead of, instead of click-jacking some random button online, if you can click-jack this button, it's kind of game over. You know, they will never get another dialogue that says, you know, allow camera access. This is kind of like, you know, the equivalent of root in the browser, so to speak. So we found that there are ways to click-jack this particular button that persists today. You can make these little fake login screens, and you can say, okay, let's, you know, copy in, let's, pull in that little uh, Flash movie player, uh, Flash security settings page, and add that little green button. Now, if they click that, then they've altered the security policy of their Flash player, and again, it's game over. So, now, when we had had all this stuff lined up, we were starting to prepare for a, our next presentation, myself and Robert Hansen. We submitted a call for papers to the OS conference. Uh, we wrote a white paper and everything ready to go. We shared our research with Mozilla, Microsoft, Adobe, and we started to go through the, uh, you know, we, we figured since these, all these issues were well-known because we, we characterized, you know, uh, clickjacking as a browser security issue, not so much a flash issue. And uh, so we shared our research, and we got a note back from uh, Adobe saying, well, why are you zero-daying us? And uh, that was kind of interesting. We weren't prepared for that. We didn't think that we had found any zero days. Uh, and, and apparently that uh, they had a security policy set up that said you shouldn't be able to make the, the flash security dialogue transparent. 
apparently there was an oversight, and we never noticed that fact, and uh, they rushed to get a patch out there. So they asked for more time, and we said they weren't given much time, so we had to pull the talk from OAS, which was not something we wanted to do, but, you know, the conference organizer was, you know, understanding, and we started working with Adobe. And uh, so once the talk was pulled is, is when all the media storms started because they, the red flies went up. You know, uh, Jeff is probably well familiar with this now that any time a talk is pulled, the, the media goes crazy. Yeah, they love that. Yeah. So, uh, so we had to explain ourselves at the conference. And uh, then there's, you know, a bunch of detractors out there that said, uh, you know, clickjacking is lame, partial disclosure sucks, you know, we're jerks and all this other kind of stuff. And, you know, we're just trying to do the best we can with the situation. They said it was all hype. Um, they didn't know at that time that uh, we can get the camera microphone access through clickjacking. Um, you know, the browser says, you know, browser vendors are basically saying we'll take a closer look at clickjacking and see what we can do. Um, and then, at the, you know, during the conference, as the conference is going on, other researchers are, like, trying desperately to find what we found. And, uh, you know, over the next week or two, people uh, were, you know, were asking us over and over again, is this it? And we're like, no, is this it? No, it's not it. And uh, then, you know, a couple of people did find it, and then we had to clamp them and say, we can neither confirm or deny the value, you know, your research. <laughs> so, and uh, that was all, you know, interesting. And uh, Giorgio Mayone that writes no script, he said, I can fix this clickjacking stuff. And so he's been creating features in NoScript that help. Um, you know, he's having to improve the model over and over again. And then uh, Dylan from Hack in the Box, he said, you know, wanted to know, you know, if I, you know, wanted to do a, a keynote on clickjacking, so I did. And then, and then finally, before that point, before it was publicly disclosed what we had found, there was another gentleman, uh, another blogger who found the issue, blogged it with proof of concept code, and you know, that was kind of the that was kind of the history of it. So there was a lot of you know a lot of cycles spent, you know, trying to keep it under wraps and you know, and give as much time as possible. But you now everything is out there, so everybody was uh, was scrambling. So that's the that's the state out there, and I've, I've talked a lot, so I wanted to give uh, Eric time to chime in in case I missed anything. No, well, I, is that the, uh, that's the, uh, so what is the current state, though? The, the Flash 10 is out, and things are getting fixed, or use uh, no script, or? Uh, we'll, we'll get to the solution, but yes, Flash 10 is out, and it's and it's supposed to, uh, it does a really good job at protecting clickjacking. There are other ways that it still need to be tidied up, but Flash okay. 10... Yeah. And we'll we'll talk. Uh, there's been a lot of questions on the Q and A tab talking about you know what do I do, what tools do I use, what do you recommend. We'll get to all that at the end in the Q and A session. So, so, Eric, do you want to chime in or anything? Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. There's there's a lot of interesting offshoots of this, and some of the Q and A looks fascinating as well. Uh, the question from the the browser perspective is, you know, what can the browser do? And of course, you know, as we talked about. As a design limitation in the browser, it's it's really tricky for the browser to universally do anything. Um, one of the things that probably should bear mentioning is that the the Adobe guys, shortly after that this was brought to their attention, they introduced a frame breaker for their config page. And the intent of the frame breaker is is that if if a page determines that it's being framed, it can break out of that frame and, and help mitigate the attack. And in the in the case of uh, well, we're jumping ahead of slide, but um, so certainly, you know, there was a pretty quick, quick reaction for at least that that part of the vector. One of the challenges for uh, website owners is using that as a mitigation, of course, is, is that frame, frame breaking the way that they're, they're commonly written is not terribly reliable because historically it wasn't really done for security purposes. People were using frame breakers 
just to maintain their brand identity and, and, and things like that. And so a lot of the frame breakers, for instance, will attempt to break the frame, but they don't check to see whether or not it worked, and then they continue to render the page. And this, unfortunately, bit us in, in Internet Explorer 8 and Beta 2 and Adobe as well uh, for that reason, because in IE8 Beta 2, there's a bug where most common frame breakers actually failed to work. And the, the Adobe fix as they made it uh, wouldn't work because essentially the, the frame breaker didn't work. It returned an access denied, and so the, the attack was still present. So that, that bug has been fixed in IE8, uh, and so the frame breaking code is more reliable. And as I understand it, the Flash 10 product has some, some different ways of approaching the problem as well. Um, but yes, from our perspective, and I'll probably elaborate as we get into some of the checks, um, frame breaking is one of the, the easiest and most direct ways of addressing this. It's, I think, important to keep in mind that clickjacking in of itself is, you know, a very old attack. It's been there since the dawn of time. And one of the reasons why it's, it's most interesting now is because the web platform is becoming richer, so you're getting functionality from add-ons that includes things like activating cameras and microphones that may not have been around 10 years ago. But as well, more and more sites have more and more content that they intend to protect. And so... You know, the, the, the hidden giant, if you will, of, of web security is the cross-site request forgery to, to cite another talk. And, of course, you know, cross-site request forgery, many sites don't protect against it at all. So clickjacking against a site that's not protected against cross-site request forgery, why bother? I can just, I can just cross-site request forgery you directly. Sure. And it's only once a site starts to put in CSRF defenses that it becomes interesting to try and clickjack that site. Of course, the other thing to keep in mind is, is that, you know, as you cited back in the beginning, the most prevalent web vulnerability is cross-site scripting. Well, if I've got a cross-site scripting vulnerability on your website, I can defeat your CSRF token too. So from the browser perspective, it's super important to have a comprehensive strategy that mitigates both XSS as well as clickjacking in order to help websites pr protect themselves from CSRF. But just as a prediction, your, your business of helping these websites find these CSRFs will probably be uh, doing quite well for a long time to come, just because the sites have to be aware and have to take defenses in order for these attacks to become as bad as, as, as you've shown. Correct, and, and actually, that was a great summary. So I think a lot of times, you know, from you know, there's a there's a possibility. You know, this, this stuff is possible, but a lot of people ask, how probable is it? This might come 12, 18 months from now, where the bad guys have to move on and and increase their game. So I think that's probably where we're at at there with this stuff. So uh, on the client side of the issue, uh, there are browser there are browser defenses. I'm sure people are asking questions about that. But upgrading to flat uh, to Flash Player 10 helps a lot in many different areas. If you're uh, you know more more paranoid than the average person, NoScript uh, helps a lot. Not only with uh, with their clear click technology, which goes after clickjacking, but with lots of other web-based malware attacks as well. Um, there's Flash Block, where you where you can selectively turn off on turn on Flash or a particular movie when you want to. You can disable plugins. You can virtualize, you know, the, the part of your you know page that you don't want to have uh, access to your camera and microphone. Uh, you can. My personal favorite still is to just to put tape, you know, the best patch in the world tape over your webcam and disable your microphone at an OS layer. And uh, and go after it that way. There are other there are other programs going in place like Content Security Policy and and, and there's another UI UI redressing thread that's going on. But as uh, as Eric said, the the browser uh, vendors are you know threading back and forth, going okay, how best to address this issue and others like it down the road. So 
so those are a lot of the details of, of, of clickjacking. Um, I don't know if we want, we want to get into the content of interest just yet maybe, and maybe take questions on this stuff so far, and then we'll get into maybe the conflict of interest stuff that I see in, in Eric and comment back. Yeah, let me, uh, let me float a couple questions out there. Um, first, a quick one. It's a, does the click actually click twice, once for the real button and once for the exploit? Uh, my proof of concept code did, but you don't have to. You can make it cleaner. So once the user presses down on their mouse, you, you, the clickjack attack is successful. To make it cleaner, then you could redirect the browser to whatever link was under the page and make it look more seamless. So that, that is possible. Okay, the next one was, uh, couldn't you also frame focus on a CAPTCA using clever CSSD indexing like clickjacking uses and bypasses, bypass its protection against XSRF also. I, if, if the user is willing to fill out the capture, or somebody is willing to fill out the capture, yeah, probably. There's probably lots of details in the implementation, but it sounds right. Yeah, okay. I mean, we've seen that in the wild actually of, of just solving captures where essentially the bad guy puts some content of interest, usually involves scantily clad women, and says, <laughs> "Hey, fill out the captcha to get her to take more clothes off," and then you filled in the captcha. And so unless for some reason the user recognizes the CAPTCHA belongs to their bank or something like that, then you may be able to entice the user to solve it. Okay. Can't they make a button to make the frame border within an iframe visible? So I'm going to let Eric field that one. Sure. Absolutely. We could totally do that. The question is, is your mom going to understand what that button is for, when she needs to push it, and what are the implications if she does see the frame border? And so, again, one of the things that comes out of this, and, and I, I think that the NoScript is a great example, right? Because NoScript is a, is a powerful plugin that basically breaks this attack by pretty significantly altering the user experience in the browser. In IE, you can get equivalent thing. You can just go turn off script for the zone in question. The problem is, is that essentially the casualties, the side effects, the, the innocent victims, there's, there's a ton of compat implication in doing anything like that. And so as the browser maker, we've got to find a way to help keep sites secure in a way that users understand and in a way that they, they see the value and they clearly understand why this is an important protection and why they shouldn't turn it off and why they shouldn't you know, fail to upgrade their browser to get it. And so the trade-offs there are one of the most significant challenges that we have. I see that Jeremiah is kind of kicking. Yeah, in actually, I, I wanted to use that as a segue one. to the conflict of interest there. Sure. Just so... Uh, so we, there's lots of attacks that are, that are, uh, that are known that way, we got, and we got into several of them. And I think the browser makers want to do the best job they can, but they can't alienate large portions of the web because I think, you know, while security plays a central role, establishing, you know, increasing market share probably trumps that. So I think by extension, and Eric can correct me if I'm wrong, browser, uh, browser makers are going to ship the most secure product they can while balancing the need for user share and that they will subsume the features by security add-ons at a later time, like anti-phishing, like the, the features of NoScript and so forth. But they'll be, I, won't, I don't really want to say late, but they will come later, a couple of years down the road when they've been well-vetted from a UI standpoint. And so, yeah, we kind of chatted about this after the, the last conference. And, and on one hand, I, I agree with you in the sense that very often there will be security plugins available that, that are out ahead of the game, if you will, of the browser implementation. There's a number of reasons for that. Definitely add-ons give you the opportunity to kind of vet a concept. And mo mo most importantly, 
the person that downloads the add-on is someone that cares about that problem. And so, you know, if you look at an example like NoScript, normal users, for the most part, don't have NoScript. The people that are passionate about web security understand the issues and are willing to suffer the user experience regressions that are introduced will go install that add-on because to them it has the value. And so for a broad-based browser, the trick is you have to be able to do security in such a way that the user understands the benefit and understands it and is willing to upgrade. And so you mentioned the the market share issue, and and this is really an interesting one. I can't speak for the other browsers, but I can speak for IE. Absolutely. We want everybody to be using the most secure, latest versions of the browser. The trick for us is we're not concerned about losing share to another browser per se. We're very concerned about losing share to prior versions. And by way of example, if you look at the number of IE6 users out there that took a look at IE7 and said, oh, well, one of my sites doesn't work, or there's this new security prompt that I don't understand, you know what, I'm going to stick with IE6 because they didn't understand the value prop. They didn't understand the security they were getting with IE7. So to, the, to us, you know, and, and to the browser secure, insecurity iceberg shown at the beginning, those guys are lost users. Now, unlike Firefox, we actually continue to service the browser for reported security vulnerabilities 10 years after its release. So Firefox 2 is actually going to stop shipping patches altogether shortly. But, you know, we're still patching IE6 issues from seven, eight years ago. But there's no question that IE7 is a more secure browser than IE6, and there's no question that IE8 is going to be a more secure browser than IE7. And the challenge for us is if we introduce a feature in IE8, that impairs compatibility and causes people not to upgrade, they won't get the benefit from any of the work we've done around cross-site scripting or enhanced ActiveX protection or data. Oh, you'll just, you'll just have to force them to upgrade. We'd love to do that, <laughs> but unfortunately we can't. And, and there's a reason, unfortunately, that, that some people just never want to upgrade their browser. And so for us, if we can't hit the compat mark, we're not going to be able to deliver that security goodness. And so there's always a hard trade-off for us of if we do this great security feature, is it going to impair uptake? And uptake is key so, because that's where we get so all the goodness. What, um, okay, a couple of questions for you. Um, without relying on browser patches, what defense techniques would you recommend to implement in the web application code? Is it just more user validation input? Is it more captures? What is? I, I think securing the, securing the site, well, you, you can't force a user to, you know, secure themselves, really, unless you're going to, like, not have them do business with the site until they, you know, improve their browser versions. I guess some, some sites have done that, but by and large, you'll never see the large portals do, uh, doing that. So on the website itself, yeah, you're going to have to do input validation, output filtering, and all the other best practices that you want to do. But it's really difficult to force your user base to uh, increase the security of their browser. I mean, that's just a really hard thing. Now, we get a question from Wayne. Um, uh, what about instead of using in-page tokens, you resort to using cookie tokens so that the browser treats these as third-party cookies? I don't understand. I don't don't understand that one, but I don't think you can do CSRS token-based protection if it's automatically being sent in the uh, in the browser's cookie. Uh, I think I think what he is pointing out is, is that it is possible to actually set your cookies in such a way that at least Internet Explorer will refuse to submit them as a part of a third-party context. So essentially, you can send your cookie with a policy that Internet Explorer would say, "Hey." the P3P policy on this cookie is not compatible with the user's desire, so we're not going to send the cookie when it's being sent in a subframe. 
And so this is something that's been bandied about in the standards organizations is the concept of a same-origin-only cookie, where you only send this cookie essentially when it's the top-level frame. It's an interesting idea, but right now one of the challenges is not all browsers support P3P, and even within Internet Explorer, if the user has ratcheted their security settings or their privacy settings down to allow all cookies or low or basically otherwise change the default settings for cookies, such a mitigation would be would be somewhat limited. And so, again, you know, we come back to frame breaking as one good best practice for, for sites that are concerned about this type of, of use. But longer term, absolutely, I think the standards bodies ought to be looking at ideas like same origin cookies to help mitigate this attack. What about, uh, since, and I'm asking this as a personal question, since I'm not a web security ninja like uh, you guys, <laughs> When you force somebody to go to an SSS, I mean SSL only site, and you have, say, your SSL only site open in one tab, and you have a non, you have MySpace open in another tab, um, because for SSL sessions, I know there's a policy that certain pages don't get written to cache, uh, you know, certain things aren't stored. Does that mitigate any of these problems if you're browsing SSL only sites or the whole sessions in SSL? Don't I don't I don't think so. You, you, from your from your non from your non SSL page and let's say MySpace the MySpace tab, you can still force uh, you know CSRF requests to any page you want, including the SSL page. I, I, SSL just protects the data in transit. It doesn't do a whole lot to protect on like the client side of it. And the yeah. browser security model doesn't treat SSL sessions separately or in a different way than they do non SSL. <laughs> Yeah, so Jeremiah's point is, is, is fundamentally correct. SSL isn't going to protect you in this case, but you did identify one mechanism that you can use to help mitigate this attack, and that's namely to not be logged into sites that you care about when you're surfing sites that you don't. And so in particular, you identified, hey, if I browse in a different session, if you will, then my session cookies for my bank won't be available for my session that's browsing MySpace. And so within Internet Explorer 8, essentially, you can create a new session, uh, a new browsing session that, that is state is not shared uh, with the prior session. And so that's one example of a way that an end user can help protect themselves. Another way that they can protect themselves, of course, is just logging out when they're done with whatever site. Yeah, it's a big pain, in, pain in the ass. Right now I, I use IE for, for one type of browsing and Firefox for another type. I, I use the same method. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, and I figure most more sites are actually compatible with IE, at least commercial banking type sites. But I use Firefox for for most of my kind of senseless browsing, and it would be nice to not have that memory footprint to have two browsers open. But it seems to be the, one of the only safe ways. It's good for it's it's virtualizing the whole thing with like VMware or something like that. Yeah. All right, so let's try to take another question. Um, we're starting to run out of time, but. Let's see what else we've got here. Um, first, another question from me. Uh, at the beginning of your talk, you, Jeremiah, you mostly spoke about how all these mass drive-by uh, attacks on uh, big web farms use iframes or malicious iframes. And I'm trying to understand, as an end user, why do I need iframes? How frequently are they actually legitimately used? I browse the net right now with iframes disabled, and very infrequently do I have a, a, a user experience that's a problem. So oh, oh, that, my, that's that's pro, oh yeah oh, go, go ahead yeah yeah so my question is I turn off iframes um, how much of the problem goes away 
I, I think a lot of it, but it also breaks the whole uh, the whole revenue model for the web. Turning on, oh, I'm sorry. Turns off, all, turns off all advertising. Well, that, that, that's again the conflict of interest. That's probably in the best interest of the user in most cases, not all cases. But I don't think that's going to be a, a default feature in any web browser anytime. Right, so. because they get their money from Google. Uh, well, no, it's just you know the, the you know all the website owners would just you know all the advertisers just have a hissy fit over that one. Imagine you have to actually turn on advertising in the browser. <laughs> so, right. I think I think you know as a browser not getting paid by Google, there's some perspective that we can offer here too. I mean, the reality of this situation is iframes are critical for any type of mashup scenario. And if you're not using iframes for your mashup scenario, you've actually generally introduced a script injection vulnerability directly into your website. So if you've got, you know, your iGoogle homepage or you've got your, your My Yahoo page, all of these guys are pulling in gadgets via iframes because that's the only way to create an isolated execution environment. And so I think certainly focusing on iframes is, is important because if there's something that we can do to protect iframes, then we can largely mitigate this problem, the, the clickjacking problem. But the, you know, disabling iframes outright breaks a lot more than ads. And so anything that's based on mashups, we're dealing right now with an issue with Facebook where, you know, an iframe is working differently and their scenarios are broken. And so certainly, you know, it's one of the parts of the web platform. One of the talks I gave recently is, yeah, sure, if we reinvent the web platform, we can solve tons of problems. But unfortunately, I think the... You know, the Internet is down for maintenance for the next two years. We're going to go bring up every new website and a new, a new architecture is, is going to be hard to pull off. And, for, uh, and, using standard, and using standard frames is not uh, viable instead of iframes. Standard frames doesn't really help you much, unfortunately, um, because essentially you're going to end up with the same ability to overlay content um, through a variety of mechanisms. So attackers could use frames just as logically or just as easily as iframes. That, that's the that's the uh, that was the one of the bugs that NoScript had was you know they were targeting uh, iframes only with clickjacking stuff. So you know when, when somebody posted that you could just use regular frames, so that had to be updated as well. But they're they're used, you can be used interchangeably. Okay. Um, let's get a couple opinions from you guys on. Oh well, actually, let's first take this question. Um, there's a new W3C standard for XHR that is implemented in Firefox 3.1. Will the W3C help to mitigate clickjacking? This is from Sean. I think uh, the two the two are un- unrelated. I think they want to do cross-domain XHR for to help with well a number of AJAX-related problems. Uh, I, I I think it's an interesting issue. I don't think it actually opens up too many new security issues because you can still force you to make a request to any site already. You might not get the feedback, but, you know, so what? And are, 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 the, are, are the new standards going to address clickjacking? I haven't seen anything, but I, Eric would probably know better than I. So, so basically, this, this is kind of a tie-in. Um, backing up just, just slightly, one of the things that you can do with the cross-site XHR is if the policy file allows it, you can send custom headers across the main, which is something that you can't do otherwise in the browser, uh, barring security bugs. But um, certainly the uh, you, you spoke a few slides back about sort of content security policy. Right. And so if you look at it in a generic way, um, the, the W3C proposal is to use essentially a content security policy for XHR to say this type of request is allowed and this type of request is not. You could imagine that a site could come up with a policy that says none of my content may be framed by someone else. And if the browser supported such a policy, then clickjacking could be mitigated through that. 
yeah. date, though, that proposal has not been made, and it's not certainly a part of the, the existing uh, cross-site request proposal. It's part of a gener- more generic proposal around site security policy where you use declarative XML to enforce certain restrictions. Okay, let's see. OpenID is being used in more and more. Uh, it is being used more and more. It has been shown to be a flawed model for securing logins. What's being done in browser development to create a more secure replacement? From Patrick. Um, this is a broader, <laughs> broader question, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's probably had issues. I have, I'm not really familiar with the issues, but uh, well, I at think least what, one of them is clickjacking, actually. Yeah. I, it's, I, yeah, I, I don't think that's a problem with OpenID specifically, but it's just kind of the nature of the way the web kind of works. Yeah. Um, you want to add on, add on that one? I, I, well, I, I'd be happy to put forth Cartspace as a solution, but, you know, obviously then I'd be obvious, clearly wearing my vendor hat. Right, um, right. I, I, I'd say that, that any, any uh, in-page authentication model is at risk of clickjacking attacks I'm not super familiar with some of the other attacks that have been proposed against OpenID. I think one of the problems that we as an industry have is that we're continually flocking to let's design a new mechanism for authentication that, you know, is different in some way than the old one but doesn't holistically try and solve problems. I mean, if you look at HTTP authentication, HTTP authentication has been in browsers forever, but it's not used by almost any website, and that's because HTTP authentication isn't compatible with one of the primary goals of website logins, which is they want to be in control of the login experience. And OpenID is more compatible with that, and that's one of the reasons that OpenID you see more prevalently on public websites than you do HTTP authentication. So I think that you know the OpenID guys just have to find a way to resolve their problems. And if it's the case of clickjacking, for instance, there's some some mechanisms, for instance, you know, no framing that can help with you know help to secure the model. All right. Anybody want to comment on uh, your favorite suggested protection model or where it goes from here? Oh uh, well, if, with the case of clickjacking, you know, I like taping up the uh, the camera the camera itself or disabling it altogether. Um, but I, I haven't reached the whole virtualization aspect of my browser experience yet. But I uh, just like Jeff there, I use two web browsers: one to do all my important stuff, and uh, it, that browser is open rarely. And then I have all my promiscuous brow- uh, browsing done by another one. That's kind of how I compartmentalize my risk. And then in your promiscuous one. Do you have Java and JavaScript turned off, and you only enable them when you really absolutely need to see the bouncing naked girl? <laughs> as, as much as I like to see the, the bouncing naked girl, um, I only I use I have FlashBlock, no script turned on, and, and that'll probably tell you what browser I use normally. But uh, I do my best. It's entirely likely I will get exploited at some point, but I'm I'm trying to just be you know one of the masses normally, but I don't do anything important with that browser. And then separately, I try to use a, a non... Actually, I use a non-standard browser for all my important web surfing, one that's not necessarily technically secure, but one that is less targeted. And do you use... Uh, if you're using, say, Windows, do you run it as the least privileged? And if you're using OS X, do you run your normal session as a user, the lowest uh, context? Honestly speaking, I, I rarely use Windows. I'm you know, a MacBook user, so I, I don't... Yeah, I'm just I'm not one of the masses in that in that regard. But do you execute as administrator your web sessions, or do you always run in least privilege? 
Uh, I'm, I, when I'm logged into my Mac, I'm just in a, in a normal normal user mode. I'm thinking it probably can't do much unless there's a browser exploit specifically targeted at that particular browser. And then as the OS settings to get anything important, you got to have to type in passwords and things like that. Right. Okay. All right. Well, we're getting ready to shut down the uh, the session. Um, one or two more quick questions. One is an observation from Brandon that uh, they say that button on the Macromedia site does not control the camera microphone settings. I'm not in a position to know if it does or doesn't. The second uh, dialogue that Jeremiah showed was specifically around global storage, the global storage or, or uh, the older site security policy setting. Uh, it's, it's, it is a security setting for the browser. I don't think that specific one in the second screenshot was related to the. Okay, so there the, is the, 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 there are other but there are other buttons in that screenshot that you can click on and get the same effect. Yeah. Okay, so it's just the the wrong uh, graphic example. I, I would just it was just a, a screenshot of the flash security dialog. Uh, okay. Somebody's pointing out you don't need to use flash block if you already have no script chair. I well, I'm double bagging, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, but see, now you're exposing yourself to uh, double the plugin risks. That's true. That's true. I don't. I don't know how many people are targeting the plugins directly now, but if I see that as an incoming trend, I will reevaluate. Yeah, you'll you'll let us know. <laughs> <laughs> so for 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 just to get my pitch in, if you're using Internet Explorer eight, you can actually uh, control on a per site basis what add-ons are allowed to run, so you don't actually need a plugin to control where Flash runs. Is the in the next version IE eight? Is there going to be uh, any difference between the sixty four bit version of IE eight and the thirty two bit? Um, the there's the distinction other than the fact that it is sixty four bit versus well, I, I think you used to get better depth coverage sixty four bit because it was being the sixty four bit operating system and you inherently got a little bit more protection that way. So so the default on sixty four bit Windows is still the thirty two bit browser. Uh, you're correct to note that all 64-bit browsers inherently get DEP because 64-bit processes always have a DEP enabled. Uh, they were able to do that because of the compatibility problem. Basically, if it, was our, if it wasn't 64-bit compatible to begin with, then adding DEP on top was no additional problem. So within Internet Explorer 8, however, even the 32-bit IE has DEP protection enabled, and we were able to do that by taking changes in the way that the protection works. The only reason that DEP wasn't on in IE7 on Vista 32-bit was add-on compatibility problems. We've since resolved those problems, and thus on Windows Vista SP1, Windows XP SP3, Windows Server 2003 SP2, Windows Server 2008, and Windows 7, uh, DEP will always be on for Internet Explorer, so you'll get that protection automatically. Excellent. All right, so let me uh, give everybody a couple uh, last-minute closing uh, observations if you guys have anything you want to say in closing. Um, we, uh, we currently uh, are planning our webcast number six for a month from now, uh, December 18th, same time, 1 p.m. Pacific. And the subject next time is going to be on database security and forensics. And it, we're going to feature uh, David Litchfield, who's also going to be releasing a new tool uh, on the webinar for doing some database forensics. And you can just check out our website for uh, sign-up information on that. And we're also in the middle of our call for papers process for both Black Hat uh, in Washington, D.C. in February and in Europe in April. Uh, so keep in mind that even if you don't submit, if you're planning on attending, uh, the sooner you sign up, uh, all paid attendees get to review submissions and help select submissions. We're using this crowdsourcing uh, technology that we developed, which just basically lets you see submissions and rate them and provide feedback. So 
we really want to try to get the audience involved more and help us select content. And also, if you want to get more involved with Black Hat or propose topics for future webinars, uh, try to get involved with all these new things we're trying out. We're trying Twitter feed. We're trying a, uh, what else do we've got going on? We've got a LinkedIn group, and now that LinkedIn has discussions, we have some discussions groups over on uh, LinkedIn where we're it's just starting to get going. We're trying to encourage more people to participate. We're trying to get a, a feel for how much participation people want to have with Black Hat, and we're thinking of rolling out our own uh, kind of social network at the Black Hat site. But for now, we're just using the, the LinkedIn groups. Okay, with that, I want to thank Jeremiah uh, for putting on a great presentation. Thanks, thanks for having me, Jessica. Yeah, I, I always enjoy the questions and answer session. Uh, because you get all kinds of crazy stuff. Here's one on, uh, can Linux give me more security? <laughs> sure. And, and Maybe. <laughs> but I would think, well, but it's a browser problem. Uh, it's not necessarily an underlying OS problem. Or you get something, this is one, I can't pass this up. I'm not going to name the guy. Um, okay, where does it go? Uh, okay, first, if you want to see a massive threat before it gets launched, Google hack nutcracker.mp3. This guy claims that Trojans have been planted on thousands of machines from what he could tell, scheduled for a Christmas release. Oh, good. Good. Like yeah. Mine. <laughs> yeah, I have to schedule Nutcracker. And uh, and somebody else is wondering why ping floods from his botnet in his country is slowing down his site. <laughs> Not really the topic of this webinar, but hate them ping storms. All right, thanks, everybody. Uh, do we have some final slides we'd like to ask you a question, I mean, for your feedback on this uh, webinar? The, uh, no, I, this, yeah, it's my last slide here is the questions. I'm, I'm good. The on 24 guys want to say something? Oh, just going to wrap it up and thank the audience. Uh, we did push out a feedback survey to our audience, so hopefully if you can help us out with, uh, with your input, that would be much appreciated. We'll have the slides and uh, audio and video linked from the Black Hat site for you to either download with just the audio or you'll be able to go to the ON24 site and see the slides synchronized with the actual telephone conversation. And we'll be trying to make that live in the next day or so. All right. Until next time, I'd like to thank everybody and uh, have a good weekend.